This is Strange Assembly episode 305, Gen Con 2021. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there, or on Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcatching service. Uh, You can also find our much, much smaller video selection on the Strange Assembly channel on YouTube. I'm talking today about Gen Con 2021. I'm going to talk about games I saw and played. This is not a review episode, so this isn't going to have full-length game reviews, but there will be some of that. Some of it's just going to be about the experience, and it was, I know it's cliche, right? Like, it was the same and yet different this year. So they now have, after the fact, released the numbers, so the official attendance, I think, was 35,000 unique persons attending Gen Con. I don't remember seeing them announce anything about the number of tickets sold in advance. Usually they're going on and on about that in press releases about how, you know, all the tickets except the Friday only tickets are sold out a month and a half in advance or whatever it is. This is way down. Unsurprisingly, the attendance was way down from normal years. I mean, like tens and tens of thousands of people down. And so there's, there's sort of two ways that those effects are felt, sort of in the exhibit hall and then everything else. So everything else-wise, there were just way fewer events. How this affects me or someone else is kind of idiosyncratic about what that person usually does at Gen Con. So, for example, for me, I almost always have some sort of like magpie one-shot that I do at Gen Con, and I always play in multiple Paizo events every Gen Con. Neither of those companies was there. Everything closed at midnight, so there was uh, no possibility of me doing one of these torture sessions where there's something wrong and I can't fall asleep, so I play in a Pathfinder game that starts at 2 in the morning. Those are some sleep-deprived games right there. Jay, on the other hand, did not come. You often hear me talking with Jay after the fact in one of these. Mike didn't go either. I think Jay had hoped to go, but right, you see the event list and there's very little. If you remember our past years, Jay really likes to do True Dungeon. They weren't there at all this year either. So it, it just sort of depended on what you were aiming for, but a vastly reduced selection. Again, I mean, which you knew in advance going in. Within the exhibit hall, People-wise, it was not as crowded. Obviously, right, there's just way less people. Exhibitor-wise, they they took up almost all of the space that they usually took up in the exhibit hall, but there were definitely holes, right? There were actual, right, you know, holes where, like, there just was no one in this booth space. That wasn't common, but they were definitely around. But even when the booths were filled, they were filled with a a different kind of a vendor on average. There were some very big companies who did not. To me, it's this sort of iconic Gen Con thing. You come in there at the core of the exhibit hall, and then there's the big Paizo booth, and a little bit further down, there's always the AEG booth with all the demo tables, and then there's the Fantasy Flight Games booth with the big giant line, although we'll talk about Fantasy Flight in a little bit. Right, those are you know, sort of always there, always mainstays. Paizo, like I mentioned, not there. Fantasy Flight, they're part of Asmodee. Asmodee, by far the biggest designer board game publisher, was not there. They and their like 10 booths, not there. AEG was there, but they didn't have the sort of space, right? Because, of course, <laughs> the publishers, in addition to whatever the potential safety risks were, and I don't, I mean, I don't know the details of Gen Con pricing, and I know the prices were reduced, but I imagine they also kind of had to decide whether or not it was worth all the monetary and time investment to get a booth or as big of a booth at one of these things when we didn't really know what was going to happen or how many people were going to come, right? So a lot of these big name things weren't there. And so a lot of what replaced that was 
I'm going to go with Dice and Magic Cards. There were definitely some smaller publishers that we probably wouldn't have seen uh, otherwise, which was which was nifty. But there were a lot of people just selling dice. You know, there's you can buy the t-shirt that says, I don't need any more dice, said no one ever. You know what? We collectively, we kind of don't need any more dice. We really don't. I know that's some sort of gaming blasphemy or something, but there's kind of a limit to how many dice stores you can have. And then magic cards. I know collectibles have been a thing, but you could not walk 20 feet in the dealer hall without hitting a booth that was interested in half, I mean, often more interested in buying your magic cards than in selling you magic cards, but both ways, buy and sell. Like there was this giant eBay booth, which is an unorthodox sort of thing to have at Gen Con. But, you know, there it is. I still enjoyed going. I'm not going to say I didn't miss some of these sorts of events that weren't there, but it was still interesting to be able to go through the exhibit hall. There were still plenty of games to demo. There was still more new stuff than you could ever finish off even that four days. So that's that's kind of what it was. But at the beginning of the day on Thursday, there I mean, right, there was no there was no like the one hot thing to go in and get for this. Nobody was there with some super mega big pre-announced Gen Con release that, you know, you wanted to be right at the front and then race walk your way to that booth and get in line and pick up the thing. So I, I actually, my first stop was Renegade, uh, right? They had a couple of games that I had had on my anticipated 10, uh, as it were, in addition to the Vampire the Masquerade stuff. So I picked up, I did pick up the Crimes and Capers High School Hijinks. I haven't had a chance to play that yet, so I can't tell you anything else. But that was one of the ones that I wanted to get right there. I did get the Transformers deck building game. As I said, when I, I put that list together, it was not here. It did not exist on the podcast. It was on the, the YouTube channel. My interest in that basically came down to I like deck building games. I like Transformers. There you go. So if you don't like deck building games, like if those aren't really your thing, this isn't going to do anything for you. Like, it's a deck building game, right? It's not doing anything catechismically new with the deck building scene. But it is reproduced across a variety of properties, this same basic game structure. There's Power Rangers, there's G.I. Joe, there's, there's Transformers, who knows? Maybe there'll be My Little Pony soon. Give me a minute on that. We'll swing right back around there. The biggest difference between this and other deck building games, I think, is that there's or, you know, your, your traditional deck building games, right, is that there's a positional element to it. The cards that you that are available to be purchased are put out face down in what's called, in Transformers, it's called The Matrix. In Power Rangers, it's called The Grid. I don't know what it's called in G.I. Joe, right? But it's the same thing. And so you have to have your character, for the most part, at a card in order to purchase it. And so, right, the cards can produce movement, and then some of the cards also have range, so, like, you can use the purchase power of this card one space away, so you can kind of, like, reach over and grab something without having to move over there. Your Autobot can transform back and forth between the, the vehicle mode that lets you move around automatically every turn, or the robot mode, which can fight. Uh, it's not actually called vehicle mode, it's called alt mode. Because one thing you'll you'll definitely notice if you play this is that they're going to release a standalone expansion or whatever it is where you're playing the Decepticons. Everything is written out so that it, it's not automatically Decepticons are, are the enemy and the Autobots are the friendlies. It, it's clearly written out so it can go either way, right? So I, I anticipate once the you know Decepticon expansion comes out, You'll be able to mix Decepticons and Autobots, and they'll interact with Decepticons and Autobots that show up in the Matrix in different ways. So I enjoyed playing it, but I mean, it it really is a I like deck building games, I like Transformers sort of thing. D do with that what, what you will based on your own preferences. Now, that trifecta there, G.I. Joe, Power Rangers, and Transformers, are also getting role-playing games from Renegade. And they also announced at the show that there's actually going to be a fourth one of those, which is My Little Pony. That like just got announced, so I don't have anything new on that. Except that right, it's going to be this Essence D20 system. Now, when Renegade originally started on these, they were going to be 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons settings. Basically, right? Because you've got the open 
gaming license sort of stuff with that. They shifted off of that. I got the chance to play a one-shot of the G.I. Joe role-playing game. I can't really tell you a lot uh, about it. There's two reasons. One, I mean, the game's not final. These things have been announced, but these were, to some extent, playtesting sessions. The other thing is, right, you can only say so much about a role-playing game if you haven't had the chance to look at the book, because you're never quite sure how much is what the game master is doing and their particular take on things versus what the rules actually say and, and how that shakes out or what some other game master might do. But the very basics of it are, as you can tell from the name, it's a D20 system, right? You want to succeed in something, you're rolling a D20. But instead of having static modifiers, you roll extra dice. So, right, if you're a little bit good at something, you don't have like, you don't have like a plus two or a plus four. You're instead going to roll your D20, or, or D20s. This has the advantage-disadvantage thing that 5th edition has. They're not called advantage or disadvantage, but it's same thing. And then you're going to roll another die, right? You're going to roll your D20, and you're going to roll a D2, or a D4, or a D6, or a D8, did, did I, you know, up to, up to your D12. So you actually get to use your full array of... Dungeons and Dragons dice set. I think you can even, I think maybe you can even go from like it's a D12, maybe up, maybe from there up to 3D6. I, I don't know. It, it, it goes on, on higher up the thing. And so, and that's how everything is modified. If you take a, you know, free action, whatever they call them, to aim your gun, well, now when you shoot, it'll let you shift up your die. So now instead of rolling a D6, you're rolling a D8. One of the things that happens differently because of the way they handled criticals is that criticals can actually happen quite a lot. I kind of wonder if there's going to be, this is going to shake out a little bit more in playtesting. So the way that the criticals work is that you have to succeed and roll the maximum value on your extra die. So there's no longer like, it's not like, oh, I have to roll a natural 20, right? It's I have to roll a natural 2 or 4 or 6 and just get a success of any sort. So at some point in playtesting, they already realized that allowing people to critical on a D2 or off rolling a D2 than a D4 or a D6, because you could critical half the time when you succeeded. I got to say, it felt like you got to critical an awful lot when you were rolling a D4. And we rolled a lot of D4s because that was the sort of, like, you're actually decent at this for a first level character die. So that was interesting. I wonder what's going to happen with that, because you're going to have a much harder time getting a critical when you actually are better and get the higher die. That is the basic system that's in place for all of those. I imagine that the details are going to change a lot. You know, My Little Pony is probably not going to have rules for aiming your grenade launcher, for example. But that's the Essence D20 gate is going to be launching. Now, that's not their only role-playing game thing. We also got to see Vampire the Masquerade stuff. None of that hits until October or later. It'll get talked about at the time. If you followed us on Instagram or Facebook, you could see pictures, but that's really more of a picture thing. But I did finally, this is kind of embarrassing, but I did finally get to play Vampire the Masquerade Rivals. This is the ECG. I packed this on Kickstarter. I've had a pile of stuff. I had not actually been able to play it. It, it turns out that like small children and political vampire games are not necessarily the best fit. And I say small children, like they're really that small anymore, but you know, it's got the deck building element you want from an ECG. It's got the sort of repeat play rewards to it. And I just had not had the chance to get it. I finally got to do that here. The first expansion has just come out and they had a pre-release for the second expansion. So I played in the pre-release for the second expansion as my first time ever actually playing a game with real physical cards of Vampire the Masquerade Rivals. I enjoyed it. I actually contemplated trying to jump into the real tournament that was the next day, because this was the one like competitive thing that had like a real you know equivalent their Prince of the City tournament, right? There were no other LCGs. There's no you know magic doesn't do anything big here. I ended up not because I'm like I'm gonna get splattered and what I want to do is use the cards that I've just played with in the pre-release, but they're not legal yet in a real constructed tournament because they had sort of come out the day before. So I didn't actually do that, but I, I did enjoy getting to play that. You know, you get to see 
the different powers that you're familiar with from the game. I mean, a pre-release is a, is a definitely a different environment from a normal tournament or even just playing around casually, but I do hope to be able to get back to that. I got the chance to play Maglev Metro uh, at the Bezier Games booth. This is a Renner Knizia game. Uh, you've perhaps uh, heard of him. It is a train game, I guess, or a subway game. It's interesting. You So you start off with a system capacity to do certain things. You can move passengers, you can pick them up, you can drop them off. You can do this in a very, very limited fashion at the start of the game. And at the start of the game, the only passengers that you can move around and pick up are robots, right? Because you don't know what you're doing. So no one can get hurt if you're only picking up the robots. But as you pick up and deliver these robots, then as you you take them to the stations where they want to go, you can slot them onto your board to upgrade. Now you can pick up more than one at a time. You can move more than one space at a time. You can lay more than one piece of track at a time. The track laying is is really quite nice. They're translucent pieces, so multiple people. You can't use each other's tracks, but you don't block each other either because you can take these transparent track sections and right they're just at different depths and you can still see on the board where they all are. You can also then start to upblock the ability to carry real human people around, which then lets people build real sta- you know stations that can use real people and then you know it goes on like that until everybody gets victory points. I did like the upgrading of the boards, and I definitely like those transparent pieces. It was visually very appealing, and it let them split the middle between uh, blocking each other and just being able to, you know, run rampant over other people's tracks. And Floodgate Games, and the, speaking of visually appealing, they have a holy festival of colors designed by Julio Nazario. This is a multi-tiered structure that that you build to play the game, and thematically, I don't know how much the thematics matter, but thematically, right, you're going around, like, throwing this color. So on the picture of the game box, you've got just this this person who's got color all over their face from this these powders. And you're using cards to, you know, throw the color out in different patterns. You actually can get points if you whack one of the other players right in the face with your color. And you can then, you get your color swatches out, and when the bottom layer is filled up enough, you can maybe hop up to the middle layer, and then you, when you throw your color out there, well, maybe it stays there, or maybe it drifts down, depending on what's beneath it. You repeat that up on the third level. Great table appeal to a uh, holy festival of colors. And another booth that I, I hit up a couple of games at was Arcane Wonders, and the, the main one I want to talk about is Furnace. This is designed by Hobby World and published uh, in the U.S. by Arcane Wonders. And it is fantastic. It's a little hard to say because it was so odd, but I feel like Furnace might be the like game of Gen Con. It, it certainly, I think, was in your, your sort of Euro game context. They had enough copies there to be able to like really sell a bunch. I mean, this is a game you can go buy in a store right now. It wasn't like Lizard Wizard from Forbidden Games were like, yeah, they airlifted in some copies, but there just weren't that many for people to go crazy and spread around. Lizard Wizard, by the way, is like the advanced version of Raccoon Tycoon. I actually saw the name and went, Lizard Wizard, that sounds like a J game, not a Chris game, but but it's a more serious game than the name makes it sound, or at least than the name makes me feel like. But I was talking about Furnace. Furnace is a game I was aware of before Gen Con, but I wasn't sure. Like, oh, it's it's just kind of just a dry Euro-y. I mean, I'm interested in it, but it didn't make my top 10 anticipated things. I wanted to make sure to look at it. So I got the chance to sit down and play it, and it's really good. And part of the reason why I really like it is that it plays really distinctly. I mean, it's an engine-building game. We've all played piles of engine-building games. But Furnace... They call it an auction. It's it's a very weird auction, such that it's almost not an auction. You have discs one to four, and you're placing them on this row of cards. This is going to happen four times over the course of the game. And whoever places the highest disc on a particular card is going to get the card. And so on each of those four turns or whatever's left of the game, when they run their engine, they're going to get to use those cards, and they're going to do. A, you know, get coal and turn goal, coal into steel and then turn steel into an upgrade token and then use that to upgrade one of your cards or 
maybe start selling stuff for coins because this is about like 19th century capitalism. So the object of the game is make money. But the people who put their discs on who don't get the card, they get compensated. There's some icons up at the top of the card and maybe you'd rather just get three steel right now from getting compensated than actually win the card. And so you definitely have that engine building feel to it where by the fourth turn you've got 10 cards or however many out there and you know you're doing this to turn that and the other and turn this to the other and chaining your effects and deciding which order works out best but that that auction feel to it is very different and it plays quickly too you get this real thinky euro game feel in a game that doesn't take hours right this does not even take an hour to play Especially, right, because once you do the, the auctioning, everybody can just run their engine all off on their lonesome and see who's came out the best. I highly recommend checking out Furnace. The other game that Arcane Wonders had that I got the chance to play was Picture Perfect. Picture Perfect is kind of a memory game, a little bit of strategy in there, but, but kind of memory. And you are going to be taking a picture at the end of the game. Don't take that too seriously, although you, you do they do literally have you take a picture at doesn't really matter that you take a picture. But the theme is that you're taking a picture at this gathering of people. But each of these people has some particular way that they want to sit. People they don't want to sit next to, people they do want to sit next to. Do they want to be in the front? Do they want to be in the back? Do they want to be at the table? Do they want to be away from the table? Whatever. And so you want to take a picture at the end of the game that will make as many people happy as you possibly can in the form of getting victory points, of course. But how is it that you find out what these people want? Well, each of these people starts the game with an envelope with three cards in the envelope. And those three cards are what it is that they want to do. And you will start the game with three of these envelopes in your hand. And so you can look at those, you can look at those envelopes, you can see what those cards are, you can maybe take those pieces and put them on your little area, which is, I mean, it's behind a screen so nobody else can see what you're doing, and kind of try to think about where you want to put those people to meet what they want. Then, over the course of six rounds, you're going to start passing these envelopes around. It's going to be different every game. It's not so simple as, you know, pass one to the left, pass one to the right, or pass two to the left, or throw them all in the middle. There's a variety of different cards, and it randomly comes up what they are. So, at the end of the game, you've seen some amount of information. You probably haven't seen everything. and of course, how well do you remember what it was that you saw back in the first round? You you can put these characters on as you you know you go through the game, but you know at the end you have to have everyone you're going to take a picture of. You got to put them on. You don't actually have to put everyone in the picture. And then there's this revealing of the envelopes, and everybody gets to find out how well their picture scored. If you can get somebody where you got everything that they wanted right, well, that's going to be worth a good amount of points. If you put somebody in there. You actually didn't get any of their stuff right, you lose points. If you only get one right, you barely get anything. But again, it's a very distinctive game. I mean, you have to be interested in that memory aspect of it. If you're looking at this, you're like, oh, I'm never going to remember that after two rounds. You're going to stink at the game. And if you don't like stinking at games, you may not enjoy it. But if that's the sort of thing that you enjoy, that's a, a different sort of game and worth checking out. Restoration Games was around. The biggest draw at the Restoration Games booth was Return to Dark Tower. That is supposed to be going out to Kickstarter backers next month, maybe. A couple months. Very, very soon. Now, I got the chance to sit down and play it for a little bit. Not enough to really see how the flow of the game is. It is cool, like, the dropping the skulls in the tower. You don't get to hear the tower that well in the exhibit hall because it's loud. So I, it is interesting, like, I, I think when I sat down and played it, I was the only person at the table who was not a Kickstarter backer. I think that the entire crowd around us was Kickstarter backers. They were, like, looking at this game and waiting to see, you know, is it as cool as the giant pile of money that I'm paying for it? Because it is a, there's a really fancy tower there in the middle, like, it's Bluetooth and... It, it's Bluetooth enabled. It's Bluetooth required, right? It hooks up to the app and like that controls what the tower is going to do. It was, it was pretty cool to see it all. I wish I had gotten the chance to play it out more. The next thing I, I think that Restoration Games has coming up is 
Thunder Road. It'll be on Kickstarter soon. That's a recurring theme at this year's Gen Con. It was sometimes hard to take a picture of a game without a QR code flipping something up on my phone because everybody had the link out to the game that was on Kickstarter right now or was about to hit Kickstarter. Thunder Road was one of those. This is Mad Max or whatever your own preferred post-apocalyptic zooming down the highway thing is, right? So it's just a crashing, smashing, there's death helicopters. Don't run into the helicopters. That's bad. Even though they're flying up in the sky, you blow up when you run to them. There's big sections of the road that aren't there that you have to make sure to go around. Everybody has, everybody's got three cars and they're expendable because all you got to do is get one at the end. But right, you know, you've got cars running into each other and then, you know, when they hit each other, there's die rolls to find out which ways the cars careen off of each other and maybe run into even more cars. Or maybe you get hit by something explosive and you see where you flip and fly off to. The thing isn't even on Kickstarter, so it was like prototype components, right? But it was a fun little thing to try out. That's Thunder Road on Kickstarter soon from Restoration Games. Possibly the publisher with the biggest selection of new games at this Gen Con was Pandasaurus. They have Machikoro 2, which is, you know, Machikoro. But there's a couple of things. One, the whole how many dice you can use right from the beginning, you can use one or two, which is... I think immediately right there, an improvement. They also, instead of having a fixed set of landmarks, there's a row of landmarks out there to buy, and whichever landmark you want to buy first, if you can get there, you can get that landmark. So it changes that up. So there's more variable strategy from game to game, which I think is a good thing. There was uh, Wild Space, which I talked about in the Anticipated 10 video. This, as you know, expected, had the freaking adorable art. It's basically a set collection game so if you're aiming for like i want to draw some cards and then i want to figure out the best way to chain those cards together so i can like keep on playing and drawing more cards with my 10 actions in the game wild space we're checking out there was even more dinosaur games right pandasaur first made the big splash on the scene with dinosaur island this year you could play dinosaur world or you could play dinosaur island raw and right both of these are very much within the theming. The other ones, they, I mean, obviously, Dinosaur Island and Dinosaur Island Rar and Right have definitely different mechanics, but you're still having that whole I, I collect dinosaur DNA and then I'm building a park, and then can I manage to do that in a way that gets people excited but doesn't get them eaten? So if, if thematically Dinosaur Island was not your cup of tea, none of this stuff's going to do anything for you. If you really like that and want new twists on that, that's, you know, your personal fixation, you're definitely really going to like these. So, speaking of Kickstarters, Slugfest Games has been, for quite some time, producing Red Dragon Inn, which is the, like, your D&D adventuring party is back at the end and getting in a bar fight. They will have, on Kickstarter soon, Tales from the Red Dragon Inn. And that is the party going out on their adventure before it is they get back to the inn. Although this is still very much in the sort of lighthearted, comedic, cartoony style and presentation of Red Dragon Inn. So, for example, in the demo scenario that I was able to play through, play a little bit of, the quest was to get the beer back, basically, right? The villains had come. They had stolen the beer. You had to get the beer so you could go back to the inn and drink it, right? You know, Red Dragon Inn is very far away, I think, in feel from like, you know, your drier Euro games, but it's always had, they've, they've had a presence at Gen Con for a long time, not like some big, huge, flashy presence like Asmodee. I think they'll do pretty well with this Tales from the Red Dragon Inn. And indeed, that was not the only D&D drinking thing I got the chance to look at. I was able to sit down and talk to Rolla Crit, uh, which is the new merch overlords for Gen Con. Offworld Designs had always made their t-shirts as well as a variety of other things. They closed up shop last year. And so Rolla Crit is coming in and filling that void. It's, uh, it was founded by folks from Think Geek. if you ever visited that particular merch website. And so from my point of view, right, I was thinking of like, oh, you're the new Gen Con t-shirt people. So 
let's talk about that. By the way, the I, I believe that by a wide margin, the most popular shirt was a Gen Con gelatinous cube with, you know, various con paraphernalia inside waiting to be dissolved. So I think there's a strong chance you're going to see iterations on that in coming years. But they are not just doing Gen Con merch. They do a bunch of other merch, too. And not just merch, but they've already got a game. This this is one that's already finished on Kickstarter, but it's called Heroes of Barcadia. And so, again, the theming is that the heroes are out adventuring and trying to get the, the drinks back. But this one is an actual drinking game. Now, I imagine that the sort of generic way to, uh, uh, not even official way to play it. Like, it, it, yes, you can play it with alcohol. You can also play it not with alcohol. It comes with glasses. And so the glasses have your hit point levels at them. So when you take damage, you have to drink. But also if you drink out of your hero, then you're damaging them. So you might want an official cup and then an unofficial cup. So you can uh, work on that both ways. Because the game involves liquids, actually all of the components, or at least all of the, the card-like objects in the game, are waterproof. So in case there's an accident, you don't have to flip out about your brand new game being completely ruined. It was very pun-heavy, so if you like the whole D&D alcohol overlap, which clearly there are a significant number of people to do, this is a very you know comedic, pun-filled thing. But it will be hitting the real the, the real world soon. And you can still check it out on their website. So that's Heroes of Barcadia from Roll a Crit. I got the chance to play Korra, Rise of an Empire from Yellow. This was a game that I threw at number two on my most anticipated list. So I was definitely looking forward to this. It's about ancient Greek city-states. You have seven different options for what to do on a given turn, and you're going to do two of them. So you've got action selection. That kind of dictates what you're going to be doing. You're going to roll two dice. The cards are numbered from zero to seven, and you're not locked in by your die. You can spend citizens, but your, your die influences what you can, your dice influence what you can take. I got the rules for this wrong when I put it on my list. I was thinking that you were more locked on your die than you were. Like, if you rolled a three, you had to spend citizens to go up or down. It's probably good that that's not what it is, because I was playing like that incorrectly, and I had some turns that just felt awful, because I couldn't do squat. And then someone pointed out that I was playing it wrong, we started playing it right, and I don't know about this game now. I want to play it again, but I need to play it again before I spring for it because, or, or before I decide if I'm going to spring for it, uh, because without that fuller locking, which, again, I'm not saying would work, the way it actually works is that you can use whatever you roll or lower. You have to pay to go up, but it's free to go down. So rolling sixes just lets you do anything. And rolling ones gives you two options, the zero and the one. and I know over the course of nine turns, that's a decent number of dice rolls. There's some kind of chance, like there's a chance for it to, to even out. But it was really pretty frustrating when you had turns where you'd roll like a two and a two. And you needed to do actions that were on like the four and the five. Or that's what you wanted to do. And you're locked in while the player over there just gets to do whatever the heck they want. I don't know. I need to explore it some more. On the, the toy game crossover front, the toy already exists, although they don't like it to be called toys. The models are called snap ships. You have different pieces. You can build your own little spaceships. When they're built, they kind of remind me of how Transformers look when they're in their uh, alt mode, their vehicle mode, their plane mode, whatever it is. right? Because they have to be a little bit blocky in order to work with the customization, right? You can't just be all super smooth if you actually want to be able to snap all sort of things together. They're going to be doing a Kickstarter for a game based on these models, and you can check out more information on that online, but it's the game is going to be called Snap Ship Tactics. I got to take a, a look at Mind MGMT, the 
psychic espionage game. It's a hidden movement game. It's based on some graphic novels. It's uh, published by Off the Page Games, who wasn't there, but they had some sort of joint booth with some other folks who were demoing things. I don't know what your chances are of being able to get one of the deluxe Kickstarter versions, but they definitely looked nice. And there's a, a campaign element to it where, where you add more rules as the scenarios go on. But the basic foundational thing is, right, it's a one versus many. One player is moving hidden. They can only move, you know, normally normally one space at a time, and they can never retrace their steps. The other players have a little bit more freedom of movement, and then they get to ask questions. I go to a space with, like, a bird, and I'm like, and I can be like, okay, there's a bird there. Have you ever been in a space with a bird? And then they... If they've been on a space with a bird, then they have to put a mark there. And so you know that they've been there at some point, but you have no idea when they were there, at least not not just based on that one question. The normal version of the game looks really good. The deluxe version, as this is going to be a recurring theme, looks really nice. So if you're, if you're interested in hidden movement, that one I would check out. My number one most anticipated game was On the Rocks. This was perhaps slightly unfair to all the other games if you've been listening to Strange Assembly for a while and you rewind back to our PAX Unplugged 2019 episode. I actually had played On the Rocks at PAX Unplugged shortly after its Kickstarter had wrapped up. I enjoyed it then. It's a really gorgeous looking game and it's got marbles which don't come up a lot but have a, a nice you know table presence. You're mixing cocktails and there's a mechanic where you're dripping the marble ingredient marbles out into a rondelle of cups and then picking one and, you know, making your recipes. 25th Century sold out of that, which I was happy to hear. Another game that 25th Century had at their booth was Jurassic Parts. This is another one of these games. There's a lot of games, honestly, that like came out last year and because it was 2020 did not get a lot of penetration. It was called Jurassic Parts. Yes, that's a painful pun. And it's a area majority game, actually, where you're trying to chisel out dinosaur skeletons. And so, right, the area majority element is you, right, you're putting your chisels along the edges of the hexes where the skeletons might be located. Uh, and, you know, you can be the majority who, who dug up most of that. On the Rocks is designed by Michael and Christina Pitchery. Jurassic Parts is designed by Kevin Lansing, both published by, or distributed at least by, 25th Century Games. Merchants of the Dark Road, I will mention here, just to say, like, I know there's some people who like metal coins, and I'll tell you, to get it with the metal coins now is going to cost you an arm and a leg. Because you got to, like, buy the deluxe version and then pay extra to get the metal coins if you're not picking this up on Kickstarter. But I think they are probably the best metal coins I have ever seen for a game. There's also insanely good-looking components like resources and wagons and such in the deluxe version of the game. And this is an audio podcast. It's kind of hard for me to like really say anything. you got to go look at it. But if you love metal coins and you're willing to pay for it, you might want to take a look at Merchants of the Dark Road. A game that I did not know was going to be there, and honestly, I was not really planning on buying in it when it came out, is Unfathomable. Unfathomable is a reskin of Battlestar Galactica. And the reason that I was not really planning on buying it is that I actually have Battlestar Galactica. So, do I really need another one? Well, it turns out yes, I guess. I don't know. So, as you know, Fantasy Flight, not there. Right? We'll get back to Fantasy Flight right after you talk about Unfathomable. But the game Zenter was there. The game Zenter, formerly known as the Fantasy Flight Game Center, is now separately owned by Christian Peterson, the founder and former league uh, leader of Fantasy Flight Games. And so they, in that booth, had copies of Unfathomable, which I had not hit yet. And like I said, I wasn't expecting it to be there. But, so I picked it up because, I don't know, it was the new shiny object. And I love Battlestar Galactica. And I actually got the chance to play. This is sort of thing you can never do a demo of in a booth, even you know, in, in an exhibit booth. But I was lucky enough that my my old old gaming group from Atlanta was able to come up, which they 
have not been able to do. For me, it was a negative that Gen Con was pushed back into September this year. For their attendance, it was a, a significant positive. And so we got to play this, and I really liked playing it. Again, this isn't a full review, but right, it's it's Battlestar Galactica, except it's got a Arkham Horror Files theme. You're on a ship, the SS Atlantica, going through the oceans, and instead of Cylons and Base Stars coming up, you're going to have Deep Ones and some other monsters. The traitors in this are Deep One hybrids. It is not a straight-up reskin of Battlestar Galactica. There are elements that are brought in from some of the Battlestar Galactica expansions. Also, because you're on a ocean liner, not a spaceship that can teleport, those mechanics don't quite work the same. So mechanically, and it's been a while since I played Battlestar Galactica, so I apologize if I'm not using quite the right terminology, right? But instead of having one track where you jump and then it gets like you move on to your destination, and it gets rid of all the Cylons who are out in space. Those two tracks are basically separate now. There's one track that works up to the ship reaching its next waypoint. It does not teleport. And then there's a separate track that, when it goes off, wrecks everything that's outside of the ship. It's a magical ritual in this. One thing that was noteworthy to me was that all of the characters in this were completely new. If you've played Arkham Horror Files games before, they tend to recycle the characters. That's not a bad thing. I mean, on their end, I partially they do it because it saves money on art and things like that. But it also gives you a sense of familiarity when you play the games. You know these characters. But this, they're all brand new. So whether you like that or don't like that, they're all brand new. We'll see how much they hang out in other Arkham Horror Files games as life goes on. But that was definitely interesting. And I will note that one of them, uh, one of the characters has an item. There's items are a thing in this game, not in Battlestar Galactica. You can have an item that's a dog, and the dog's name is Starbuck. So we all know it's a reskin of Battlestar Galactica. All right, Legend of the Five Rings. That's a thing that I've, I've always done. And when Legend of the Five Rings ended, right, you heard Mike and I talk about, if you listen to this podcast, let's, let's talk about, like, what is they're going to be for Fantasy Flight, and like, what's going on? Well, they announced almost nothing. For Legend of the Five Rings, they literally announced no games. They announced a merch store. And it's not that that isn't the sort of thing that I might be in the market for, but you kind of got to have a game. The role-playing game has been pushed over. That's been licensed off. Edge has it now. They're, I think, finally about to get out what's Maybe the last fifth edition. Let that's not been. A, nobody's announcing that. Nobody's saying that. But you kind of get the feeling that that'll be like the last fifth edition Legend of the Five Rings book. They didn't even publish it. I don't. I don't know if Edge has actually published anything in the United States yet. And then because they're now going on, and there's going to be a Legend of the Five Rings fifth edition, like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons, but Legend of the Five Rings. A lot of people seem to hate that. I think that's great, actually. 5e is super popular. I like L5R. Let's get it out there. Let's go. But that's not Fantasy Flight. Fantasy Flight doesn't have that anymore. And I kind of wonder if Plaid Hat got absorbed by Asmodee, and then some of the Plaid Hat games got pulled from Plaid Hat and sent to other parts in Asmodee, and now Plaid Hat is back out on its own. And I kind of wonder if... Asmodee is basically grabbing what it thinks are the juiciest bits of Fantasy Flight, right? It's going to take the Star Wars miniatures and send it over there, and then we're going to... All the role-playing stuff games over there, all this is over there, and, like, they probably end up owning the IPs, and then I wonder if Fantasy Flight will get, like, spun back out. You know, Peterson gets Fantasy Flight back, it's just board and card games again, and then they get the build-up from there, and they can do L5R board games, and they can do Arkham Horror Files board games, which I love. They can do Terranoth board games, which I don't care about Terranoth, but other people do. Mike does, for example. So I hope to see that, right? Because, as I've said before, Fantasy Flight was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, brands in the American designer board game market. And that brand has not fared well in the last couple of years as it has felt like Fantasy Flight has been stripped for parts. And I would really like 
to see Fantasy Flight back at it and making games that we love and I want to buy. I mean, like, and so I've got one, right? I've got Unfathomable. So it's not, I mean, they're not completely quiescent, but it would be nice to see more. On the sort of other reskin front, I really like Colossal Arena. Colossal Arena itself is a reskin of Grand National Derby. This is all Reiner Knizia. Grand National Derby like makes the most sense thematically, honestly, because it's a horse racing game. And more than a horse racing game, it's a horse betting game. So right as the game goes on, you're making bets on who's going to win and which of these seven competitors are going to be around at the end of the game. Colossal Arena, which is the person I actually own, made it into a monster fighting each other in arena game, whatever. And now Plan B Games is releasing Equinox, which is another version of Grand National Derby and Colossal Arena. I'll admit, I found myself a little vexed by this because it wasn't apparent. It wasn't like unfathomable where like, it was like, look, we don't have the license for Battlestar Galactica. Here's us making this great game again in a way that you can buy again. Whereas Equinox doesn't, I didn't really feel that was acknowledged that this was a, a redo of an old game. On the other hand, it's a good old game. So once I kind of like get past my little vexation at that, I don't have a use for this because I've got Colossal Arena. I'm fine. It's definitely nicer upped component-wise than Colossal Arena was. Colossal Arena is a game I would recommend checking out if it's not something, the sort of thing you can find around. Equinox is is a new version of that and is worth checking out. This is a, a great gateway game. This is a game that I enjoy as well as being able to just introduce it to people who have not really played designer games before or who have only played them a little bit. It's one that I like to bring along with like Ticket to Ride. But it's now being published as Equinox. CGE had one new thing that was actually there and another thing that wasn't quite there yet. The new thing that was actually there was I'll call Galaxy Trucker 2.0, right? Like it's an updated version of Galaxy Trucker. The gameplay does not change all that much. I think the most notable thing though, the most notable thing is this is a game that used to have an MSRP of 60 bucks and it has an MSRP now of 30. The tiles aren't quite as thick or quite as big. Some of the other components are actually nicer, but that is a way reduced price point for a fun game. Now, the default way of playing has gone to just playing one run instead of three, but you can still play the campaign style thing. So if you already have Galaxy Trucker, you don't need to get another one. But if you're interested in Galaxy Trucker, if you're interested in this, like I have a real time element where I build my spaceship and then we go flying out there to try to deliver our stuff, except like half the ship's going to get blown away by asteroids and aliens and such before we actually get there it's now available at a much lower price point so we're checking out the thing that wasn't quite there yet i don't know this is like a december release maybe is the first expansion for lost ruins of arnak a lot of folks game of the year for 2020 it's a deck building worker placement game where you are going into the you know lost ruins of arnak to defeat ancient monsters find artifacts dig up stuff And the Expedition Leaders expansion will make things asymmetric for the players, right? You have a player powers, essentially, on the Expedition Leaders. It also has some things that you can modify the board, like there's a research track on the board. And Expedition Leaders will have a double-sided overlay for that, so you can put it on either one. So now you're going to have three different research track options, change things up more from game to game. Lost Ruins of Arnak is fun. It gets a little out of hand by the time you get to the sixth turn. You're like, oh, this game only lasts six turns? That's not that long. But things just kind of get exponentially crazier with the combos and how much better your cards are and getting further into the jungle that you have tons of stuff going on by the time you get to that sixth round. The very, very last thing I will talk about here is Echoes from Ravensburger. Echoes is a series of games. They're like a low price point, I think like 10 bucks. And they are audio mysteries. And I wanted to make sure to try one of these out. Because I like some of these, right, mystery, escape game, puzzle sorts of games. But I was kind of concerned because I have some troubles 
picking out sounds through background noise. So, like, I've played some escape room games where they have you listen to a sound on the app, and I have no earthly clue what sound it is I'm supposed to be picking out of that. So, I was kind of worried, like, am I going to be able to, like, play this game at all? And it turns out, yes, I can. So, I mean, we were able to play it not quite on the floor. They had, like, a little booth within a booth where you could go in. The door was still open, but, you know, you had some sound reduction. There's different iterations of this, right? So one is the dancer and one is the cocktail, and there'll be, you know, other ones as they release more of these. But you have something that has happened. I don't know if they're always going to be a murder or whatnot, but you're trying to solve some sort of mystery. And you have all of these cards out on the table and you scan them with your phone and it plays some sort of sound. And you have chapter cards and you have normal cards and you're trying to figure out which cards go with which chapter cards and what order they go in and then what order the chapters go in. And you're doing that by listening to these sounds and paying attention to what people are saying and is there background noise and, you know, just having that unfolding little mystery. And in a very low price point. But worth checking out if that sort of game is of interest to you and a different, very different take on it. And of course, yeah, this is an app-required game. That's the Echoes series from Ravensburger. Well, so those are my sort of hour of ruminations on Gen Con 2021. I hope to be able to make an appearance at PAX Unplugged this year. We'll see how that all goes and then get back into the normal swing of things at Gen Con next year. But that's it for this one. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcatcher is. If you can't find us on your favorite podcatcher, please let me know so I can fix that situation. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. Always love to hear your comments and feedback there. You can also reach us at the usual social media. We are facebook.com slash strangeassembly at strangeassembly on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find the Strange Assembly channel on YouTube, although you're going to find almost exclusively role-playing game content there, at least for now. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.